Well, in an effort to align with the choir, I thought I might bring the teaching of the day in Latin. <laughs> but then I thought better of it, and I decided I'd bring it in my native tongue, which is known as Yinzer. <laughs> Two weeks ago, I suggested that as a congregation, we are standing on the threshold of marvelous opportunities. And God is affirming the expanded influence vision on a weekly basis. And I also suggest that the moments like this call us to look in two directions. To look back and remember the marching orders that God gave us, that brought us to this point. To make certain we're staying on the divine script. But I also suggested we need to look forward at the inevitable challenges we are going to face as we follow God's script so that we can be pre-warned and so that we can be prepared. The last two weeks I look back at our marching orders. They're embedded in the narrative of Matthew 14:35. It says, when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And I said that over 30 years ago, God called us to look like Jesus. Two weeks ago, we considered what the church can look like when it doesn't look like Jesus. We considered some of the bad looks of the church. Last week, we unpacked what it means to look like Jesus. And now in the third and final part of this series of looking like Jesus, I want to look at some of the giants I believe we're going to be facing as we follow God. These are giants that are rather unique to us as a metropolitan, multicultural congregation in an urban neighborhood. And I've given this third piece its own title. I've entitled it, Facing Giants, Finding Growth. If you're following Jesus, facing giants is inevitable. Finding growth, well, that's up to us. Before we unpack that, let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to prophetically preach and teach your Word. And by your Spirit, open the eyes of our understanding, because we are people on a mission. You haven't called us to just get through the week. You have called us to expand your kingdom to be your partners in the greatest endeavor in human history, the only one that has eternal implications. So open the eyes of our understanding. Help us each to see our next step of growth in grace and in the knowledge of God. And help us collectively to see our next steps of obedience and mission. And as always, we pray these things primarily for the honor of Christ. Then the welfare of his people and for the fulfillment of our mission in the world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit, may the Lord be with you. In case you haven't noticed, following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. My father used to say, any dead fish can go with the current. It takes a live fish to swim against the current. And when you're not following Jesus, you just flow with the current of ungodly culture, dead in trespasses and sins. But when you're following Jesus, 
You're swimming upstream against the cultural flow of the world. And again, that's not for the faint of heart. After all, Jesus promised us in no uncertain terms that the world would hate us as it hated him, that they would speak ill of us, and sometimes even openly persecute us. That's why I can never understand the tendency of some believers to discard any portion of God's Word that the unbelieving find offensive in an effort to win the approval of the unbelieving. Why would we do that? It's a fool's errand, destined to fail. And it's fueled by what Scripture calls the fear of man, an overriding concern for what will people think of us. And God referred to the fear of man as a dangerous, dangerous trap. You see, the only way to win the world's approval is to lose Jesus' approval. Let me say that again. The only way to win the world's approval is to lose Jesus' approval. He made that clear in Luke 6. Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. I say, love your enemies. Now notice, Jesus didn't connect the world's approval with the church's progress and advancement and enlightenment. He connected the world's approval with false teaching and false prophecy. He was telling us, if you desert the gospel and preach something else, you'll be popular, but you will have betrayed me. And he made it clear that as his people, we have enemies. We are embroiled in spiritual warfare, and our objective isn't winning our enemies' acceptance. In short, Jesus didn't call us to be like. He called us to be like him, and he was hated. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't suggesting that we go out of our way to be hated by acting badly. Some Christians do that, but don't you be one of them. And in fairness, sometimes the criticism hurled at God's people are well-deserved. And when they are, we ought to confess our failures in humility and repent before the Lord. But that being said, the fact remains that believers who seek the world's applause by compromise fail to recognize that the world isn't applauding their progress, it's applauding their surrender. Their surrender, big difference. Now, why am I saying these things? Well, I'm saying them to encourage you if you're getting tired in the fight and to caution you if you're getting tired of the fight. Both are a constant danger to those who follow Jesus because evil never relinquishes its holdings without a fight. Every religious objective faces unrelenting opposition. Every righteous objective faces unrelenting opposition. Put differently, when the church attacks evil, evil attacks the church. And that's why many of God's blessings are found on the other side of intense spiritual conflict. And that's why to follow Jesus in mission is to face giants. Giants that may arise from without, 
or giants that may arise from within. Giants that stand before us like Goliath of old, breathing out their threats, barking out their challenges, ridiculing our resources, mocking our faith and our God. But here's something we learned from the story of David and Goliath. Though we cannot avoid giants, we can transform them into our servants. You remember what Goliath said when he stood before the people of Israel? Send out somebody to fight me. If I win, you guys serve us. But if he wins, we serve you. Every time you are facing a spiritual giant, you are looking at a potential servant to your own growth in grace and to the cause of Christ in the world. And we turn giants into servants when we allow them to do two things. First of all, to expose any sin or unbelief in us that we haven't detected. And secondly, by giving us opportunity to use our faith and thereby strengthen our faith for the future. If you deal with giants in faith, you can turn those ungodly giants into your unwitting allies. So today I want to look at three giants that I believe God has shown me await us in the future. Three giants we're going to face as a congregation. And I'm talking about these in proactive fashion, not reactive fashion. First of all, as we move into the future with God, we face the giant of hidden biases. Say those two words, hidden biases. Now, numerous studies have shown that people who are otherwise comfortable with diversity, comfortable with being with people who are different than them economically and ethnically and politically, people who are comfortable with diversity sometimes have boundaries to their comfort that they don't even recognize, that they haven't even thought about. And sociologists call these boundaries, these unseen boundaries, tipping points. It's the point beyond which comfort with diversity gives way to discomfort with diversity. And once that happens, things that once felt promising and exciting and felt like us begin to feel uncomfortable and threatening and other. It's a matter of degrees based on hidden biases. Now, how do we come by hidden biases? When we as human beings repeatedly encounter certain situations, certain statements of value, certain bits of cultural knowledge and cultural behavior, those things become embedded in our minds and in our spirits. And once they're lodged there, they influence our behavior even though we remain oblivious to their presence and their influence. Now, let me give you an example of this, the picture on the screen behind me. As you look at this picture of two tabletops, do the two tops look identical in width and length, or do they look different? Well, they look different. But the reality is they are identical in width and in length. So why? Do they look different to us? 
They look different to us because our minds have been trained to translate a two-dimensional image like that on the screen into the three-dimensional images we experience in the real world. And we do that without even thinking about it, but the result is we don't see what's really there. We see what we've been trained to see. Now, that's an example of a hidden bias. And all of us are susceptible to them. It's rather disconcerting when you realize your conduct can be guided by mental activity that you aren't aware of, but it can. I sometimes suspect that's why David prayed, Lord, show me if there's any evil way in me, because I'm not seeing everything. I suspect that's why the Apostle Paul said, test all things and why he called us to the continual renewing, I-N-G, of our minds. I suspect it's why he said, don't let the world squeeze you into its image. Much of what the world does in squeezing us into its image goes unrecognized. As Christians, we want our behavior and thinking to be shaped by the Holy Spirit, not by ungodly culture, but past history. And the shortage of multi-ethnic congregations in a multi-ethnic nation would seem to indicate that there are hidden biases at work in the church, overriding our prayers, overriding our heartfelt, sincere intentions. And one thing I believe God has shown me, diversity at ACAC is increasing, and we thank God for that. But I believe that God has shown me that as our diversity increases, some folks may come to the point where our diversity collides with their hidden boundaries, with their hidden biases. And this can happen to you no matter your ethnicity. And they'll suddenly find themselves emotionally uncomfortable with the reality of diversity without really understanding why. And diversity will begin to feel like loss rather than gain. And when that happens, they'll have one of two choices. We'll have one of two choices. We either work through our discomfort and work deeper into the Holy Spirit, or we'll find respectable reasons to disengage, saying things like, well, it just doesn't feel like it's for me anymore. So I think as our diversity increases, some may want to leave our ranks. Doesn't mean they're evil, doesn't mean they're bigoted, just means they're being influenced by hidden biases, and all of us can be and all of us have been. So this isn't judging anyone. But we'll need to transform that giant into an ally and make it a point of advance and growth. Now how do we do that? by facing our own hearts with Judgment Day honesty, by redoubling our commitment to God's non-negotiable mandate to preserve the unity of the Spirit, the oneness of the body of Christ. We'll need to welcome the Holy Spirit's diagnosis of our souls even when the test results are alarming. We'll need to reject our pride and our fear. We'll need to humbly admit and confess where bias has moved in. We'll need to repent of it. 
We'll need to selflessly engage in change that will often be uncomfortable. And we'll need to patiently encourage one another as we embark on this bumpy, difficult journey together. If it was easy, far more churches would be doing it. But if we'll do that, we'll transform the giant into our ally. Here's how. When we conquer the giant of hidden biases, we remove our own hidden biases against the Holy Spirit, and we experience previously hidden blessings. Because on the backside of every hidden bias, there is a hidden blessing. And God wants you to work through the bias so you can step into the blessing. Now, what's the second giant? We face the giant of being a prophetic church in a politicized church age. God has called the church to be prophetic. What does it mean to be prophetic? You speak forth the Word of God. Prophecy isn't just foretelling the future. It's foretelling God's truth. And to be prophetic, if you read the writings of the prophets, is to call out idolatry, to identify idols, diagnose idols, denounce idols, resist idols, the substitutes for God that our culture embraces and that the church sometimes <laughs> embraces. But unrelenting cultural pressure and hidden biases can easily lead the church to unwittingly partner with idols rather than calling them out and especially in the area of politics. Amen. And when that happens, God's name is married off to a particular party, to a particular platform, to a particular candidate. Amen. And the offspring of that unequal yoke is named civil religion. Civil religion. Civil religion is a combination of God and country, God and politics. God and national identity, God and national economy. It's a combination of God and things that have no business being combined with God. Because anytime you put God and, it doesn't matter what follows the and, it's out of place. It's God and God alone. Now, civil religion in the United States has been present with us since our founding. Many of our founding fathers felt that we were the nation raised up to make the world a godly place. But it was really fueled in the 1950s, fueled by the fear of labor unions and communism when that fear was funded by the war chests of industry and capitalism and preachers were paid handsome sums to hold God and country rallies and to equate American capitalism with the kingdom of God. And rallies were held all across the country, and it was in the 1950s, as a part of that movement, that the term, in God we trust, was placed on our currency. That wasn't the Founding Fathers. And one nation under God was inserted into the Pledge of Allegiance. That wasn't the Founding Fathers. But the whole movement was funded by currency. <laughs> and it was all about maintaining power. 
Now, once civil religion gets entrenched, political ideology becomes idolatry because we put our ultimate hopes in a political ideology rather than in the work of God. And the very things that shift our trust away from God are held up as benchmarks of faith. Now, you know that that has happened when you hear statements suggesting that a true Christian will vote for blank or a true Christian will vote for fill in the party of your choice and that what's good for America is good in the sight of God. That's civil religion. And that's blasphemy. And that's idolatry. And yet in many places that passes for church. God serving politics rather than politics being informed and challenged by God. Now all of us once again are vulnerable to this. And, and once again, falling prey to it doesn't mean you're Satan's spawn and the worst thing that ever walked the face of the earth. But neither does falling prey to it mean that we're innocent victims. And I say that because spiritual seduction depends upon an opening. When Satan comes peddling his garbage, if there isn't something in us that resonates with what he's peddling, his appeals fall on deaf ears. So when they're heard and embraced, it means there was something in us that wanted that. And I'd like to suggest behind political ideology in the church, it's pride and fear. They're opposite sides of the same coin, pride and insecurity. Because in our pride and insecurity, we often come to church, I feel, wanting to be affirmed in our nationality, our ethnicity, our economy, and our politics, rather than being challenged by God and transformed into the image of Christ. We want the church to serve our agenda. And when we get caught in that, we're always looking for some tangible indicator that God is on our side and that we're on God's side. The Pharisees had PhDs in this. They just couldn't accept that God was with them by faith. They had to invent all of these rituals and so on, and then they would point to those things and say, there's proof that God is with us and we are with God. But the temptation wasn't new to them. When Israel left the idolatry of Egypt, they struggled to believe that God was actually with them. Because in Egypt, all of the gods were made of metal and wood and stone, and they could be seen and they could be touched. Now they're out in the wilderness with a God who cannot be seen, who is invisible to the naked eye. And that left them feeling insecure. So you'll remember the story. They built a golden calf, and everybody chipped in. So they had something that said, God is with us. That's civil religion. Substituting something for God and making it an indication that God is with us. And as former residents of a spiritual Egypt, and every believer is, the temptation to build golden calves is never far from us. And a politicized climate like ours lends itself to golden calves. All that to say this, if we are going to be a prophetic church we will not always be a popular church. The prophetic is rarely popular. Most prophets were killed. 
Because if we're a prophetic church, what we're preaching and what we're doing will gore somebody's ox. It will destroy the golden calf in which they have invested their gold. If we denounce idolatry rather than conforming to it, some will actually accuse us of lacking principle, lacking courage, and lacking orthodoxy. I've had people suggest that I'm deficient as a pastor because I don't tell you how God would have you vote. Some have left us because I don't stand up and tell you to vote. Now, of course, they want me to tell you to vote for their party and their platform. But nothing could be more principled, more courageous, and more orthodox than challenging idols, even popular ones. Now, how do you transform this giant into an ally? When you put away the idol of politics, you put on the power of God. Because every idol drains you of spiritual power. And if you put off the idol of politics, you stop the drain and you move into a deeper power of God. Third and final giant, we face the giant of fractured worship. Truly multicultural congregations. I am trying to speak in Latin, aren't I? (laughs) Truly multicultural congregations don't assimilate people. They adjust for the sake of people. Now, let me explain the difference. To assimilate is to say you're welcome here, but we've got to do it our way in the way we've always done it. You're welcome here as long as you become like us. That's assimilation. Adjustment says, you're welcome here, so now your way will also be a part of our way. And I think one of the most difficult adjustments for multicultural congregations is in the area of corporate worship. Music has tremendous power. Have you noticed that? It can comfort us. It can convict us. It can inspire us like few things can but it has a dark side if we aren't careful. When diverse musical styles and diverse worship expressions are joined together in adjustment, it can birth strong, negative, emotional reactions. And then worship becomes a battleground in which the first casualty is worship itself. And the negative emotions that are experienced depend on who you are and where you're standing. For some, diversity in music feels like the loss of the spirit, the loss of freedom, the loss of joyful celebration. And for others, it feels like a loss of reverence, a loss of content, and a loss of quiet contemplation. I've been around the block enough to know that one culture's spirit-filled is another culture's showbiz. And one culture's reverent is another culture's dead. And so it goes. And soon worship becomes battleground. But God's people have to be mature enough to rise above that nonsense to stop making the familiar an idol because there are bigger issues at stake than taste and tradition. 
In order to feel included and valued in a congregation, people need to experience what are called cultural markers. Those are activities or styles of activity that have the effect of saying, we include you. We know you're here, and we want you to feel comfortable. We know you're here. We respect your culture. We're intentionally including it, not asking you to sacrifice it. That communicates, I'm part of a diverse family. The absence of cultural markers communicates, this family's only for a few, and I'm not one of them. <clears throat> Navigating the strong currents of emotion that accompany diverse corporate worship requires commitment to the unity of the body, a willingness to lay aside the familiar for the sake of others, a heart that's aligned with God's passion to save all people. Somebody once said, let me hear your music, I'll tell you who you're trying to reach. And in many places, that means they're only trying to reach one culture and one ethnicity. Some places, it means they're trying to reach dead people. <laughs> Navigating these currents means we have to un have an understanding of what heaven's got to be like because it's not going to be all your way. <laughs> means we need to have a loving heart and a thick hide. Means we have to enthusiastically respect and appreciate differences rather than begrudgingly tolerating them or worse yet, packing up and moving down the street to the church where everything is as we like it. And those options are out there for you. Here's what I believe about diverse congregational worship. In diverse congregational worship and music, every one of us gives up something we like Amen. so that all of us gain something we desperately need. Everybody gives up something they like so that all of us gain something we desperately need. You see, you can't lay hold of the better thing God has for you until you let go of the cheap substitute you're holding on to now. You've got to be open to the blessings of God. And if you're saying, my way, my way, you're not open to the blessings of God. He can't set something in your open or closed fist. Now, how do we make this giant into an ally? When we make worship common ground, rather than a battleground, we place ourselves on holy ground. We're acting like complete people rather than fractured people because the opposite of holiness is to be fractured. And you've got to get on holy ground before you can do God's mission. That's why he put Moses on holy ground before he said, now go and liberate my people. So let me say in regards to diverse worship, you don't have to like every different musical style. But please appreciate the fact that we're trying to be respectful of everyone in the room and adjust rather than assimilate, be multicultural rather than monocultural, and look more like heaven than a culture club. And, and if one style isn't your thing, do your best. Nobody's judging you. I mean, let's be honest, we have challenge clappers. So, so, so you don't have to jump in and clap on everything if, if, if you want to, you know. 
If you are, clap softly. Yeah. And, 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 and you don't have to jump. But don't stop your brother from jumping if he wants to. Nobody's got to get everything they want. But hopefully everybody gets what we all need. That's what it means to get out of diapers as a Christian and start eating meat. So there you have it. Three giants I believe we're going to face. Every one of them is going to give us an opportunity to move deeper in God. Or look for an exit. And that may happen. A.W. Tozer, that prophet and preacher said years ago, the deeper you go in Christ, the less company you're going to have. So many people are satisfied with shallow religion. The deeper you go in Jesus, the less company you're going to have. But we're not about numbers, we're about faithfulness to God. Because at the judgment seat, he isn't going to say, ACAC, how many people were there? He's going to say, what did you do? Did you follow my script? So we're going to face giants. It's inevitable. But I'd like to suggest we get out our slings. Look for our five smooth stones. Everybody's got them. Walk down into the valley where that giant is. And let's kill us some giants. Let's put some decapitated giants in our rearview mirror. Okay. I don't usually close to applause, so I'm not going to kill a good thing. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us to be a mature church. We have seen so much foolishness and ugliness these last few weeks. And in our nation, we see tremendous suffering because of hidden bias. Many times it's not all that hidden. Lord, if we can't show the world a better way, why are we here? If we're just a reflection of the world with a few scripture verses and a religious tint, then we're worse than useless. You've called us to be salt, light, prophetic, so help us to move deeper with Jesus so that we can expand our influence for Christ. And in an era of idolatry and bias and fracturing, help us to model the oneness of the body of Christ and give the world a really good alternative. In Jesus' name, amen.